If you would turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We're in John 12. We're going to start reading here in verse 20 in just a moment or two. The end of John chapter 12 contains some of Christ's last interactions with the crowd in the city of Jerusalem before our attention gets focused onto him, his disciples, and the way to the cross. So before we actually make our way into a lot of teaching, a lot of guiding that Jesus gives his disciples from chapter 13 through the end of chapter 17, we are still with Jesus in the crowds in Jerusalem. The, the feast of the Passover, it's on its way. A lot of people have come into the city, and so Jesus is still interacting with them. But we're making our way to the cross. So until we get there, Jesus is interacting with the crowds. And through these conversations, we're going to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to learn more about what the cross is all about, why it happens, and what happens because of the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want us to notice this, especially the way John constructs his gospel. The closer we get to the cross, the more intense the language becomes about what it means to follow Jesus. His disciples are about to experience some very trying moments. It's going to involve soldiers, betrayal of one of their own, torture, death, and then eventually resurrection. They have a lot to get through. So Jesus has a lot to prepare them for. And I'm going to say this morning, Jesus has a lot to prepare us for as well as we are followers of Jesus Christ. So in our passage of Scripture this morning, what happens is this. Jesus takes the opportunity of a few Greeks, non-Jews, they're believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they've made their way to Jerusalem, but a few Greeks seek out Jesus. They want to talk with him. And Jesus takes the opportunity of that request to begin talk about what it means to follow him and what's coming with the cross. So here's the, the two things primarily we're going to deal with in our passage of Scripture this morning. First of all is this. We want to see Jesus. This is the request that these Greeks make. Jesus is attracting people to himself. He walks back into the city of Jerusalem. We've read this language. The crowds are wondering, is this guy Jesus here? Is he going to perform more miracles? Is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead here in the temple grounds? We've heard this kind of thing. Jesus is attracting more people to himself, both Jews and now we see Greeks. In fact, part of what the cross is going to do is turn the intensity up on the people who are going to seek after and follow Jesus Christ. The cross is actually going to cause more to follow him. But then through all of that, we're forced to ask this question, why do I want to see Jesus? Why do I want to follow him? Because that's the question that Jesus is going to answer inside of our passage this morning. So we want to see Jesus. And then as Christ begins to talk about that, his vocabulary gets very specific, and we're going to see this. God will be glorified. God will be glorified. On the way to the cross, Jesus talks more about glory than he has at any other time in John's gospel. Jesus will be glorified. He wants his Father to be glorified. 
And in this passage, the Father actually speaks out loud to Jesus in the crowd, and he says, I will glorify my name. So this language intensifies on the way to the cross. So there's something bigger that's coming. It's not just the religious leaders trying to do their political wrangling with Pilate and the Romans versus Jesus and the disciples. Who's going to win or lose that political argument? Something far more intense and incredible is happening. Something cosmic is happening with the cross of Jesus Christ. And through it, God will be glorified. So let's start reading John chapter 12, verse 20. The passage of Scripture goes like this. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. There is this relationship between Philip and Andrew, and as they go to Jesus and bring people to Jesus, we see that a few times. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I love this little passage of Scripture for a couple of reasons. These Greeks who've come to worship, they've also heard about Jesus. They didn't come probably from a region in Judea. They probably traveled further than that, but they get there, and they find Philip, and they say, we want to see Jesus. I just love that moment. We want to see Jesus. That's a great request, and this is a great response. So Philip goes and finds Andrew, and Philip and Andrew bring this request to Jesus. These Greeks who have come to worship, they want to see you as well. They want to talk to you as well. They, they talk to the disciples, but they want to see Jesus. He is what this is all about anyway. So it's a great request, and it's a great response. Philip and Andrew do exactly the right thing. They say, okay, hang on just a second. We know where Jesus is. We also think you should come and talk to Jesus. So let us go find him. We'll talk to him, and we'll put this meeting together. They try to put these Greeks together with Jesus. This is exactly the right response. Now, before we get through the rest of the conversation, I want to make sure that we hear something like this. In the end, the best thing I can do is to take somebody as close to Jesus as I possibly can. That's the best thing that I can do. Not just me as Pastor Phil, but me as a follower of Jesus Christ. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ, that's the best thing that we can do is to get people as close to Christ as we possibly can. Peter and, or excuse me, Philip and Andrew probably could have talked with the Greeks for a long time about Jesus, but they wanted to know about Jesus himself. And we need to have this kind of attitude about our faith. I am not what people need. I rarely have the answers and solutions that people really actually need. 
There is nothing that I can say, there's nothing that you or I can say or do that can actually save a soul or transform a life. The best thing we can do is take people as close to Jesus Christ as we possibly can to present him to them, to make him as obvious as we can inside of our lives so that when they see us, and I like this, when they see us, do they recognize us as disciples of Jesus Christ? They recognize Philip and Andrew. They say, oh, these guys are with Jesus. Let us go ask them about Jesus. When people see you or if people know you, do they know you well enough to think, oh, this person knows Jesus. Let me ask them, how do I meet Jesus Christ? So what people really need is Jesus. They don't need a self-help gospel. They don't need a political gospel. They need the gospel. <laughs> they need Jesus Christ. So if anyone wants to know about your faith, your life with Christ, Treat it as if they want to know more about Jesus and not more about you. May our lives point more and more to Jesus Christ. And in this moment, we've talked about these kinds of moments before inside of the gospel. The way Jesus deals with questions, requests, talks to his disciples, I like this one. Philip and Andrew say, hey, Jesus, we've got these Greeks back here. They want to talk to you. It's not just the Jewish crowds, but man, I think the word is getting out. Things are going to spread. You're going to want to talk to these Greeks. So when Jesus hears this request, this is what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Philip and Andrew think, is that a yes or a no? <laughs> do we go get them? What do, what do we do? <laughs> I love this kind of moment. What on earth is going on in the faces and minds of Philip and Andrew? For Jesus, the Greeks who seek him becomes a teaching opportunity about following him. And it's going to become a teaching opportunity about how the cross will expand his reach. We're excited because now people who were born and raised in other nations and cultures want to know Jesus, and Jesus is going to tell them, eventually, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all people to myself. So this becomes this powerful teaching opportunity for Jesus Christ. His first response to Philip and Andrew, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man, Jesus Christ, now is the moment for Him to be glorified. The language of glory intensifies in this passage of Scripture. The moment of glory, as it's spoken of in this passage and in others on our way to the cross, the moment of glory is going to refer to the cross and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the spreading of the church of Jesus Christ and He coming, Jesus coming as King of kings and as Lord of lords. That's, that vocabulary is going to refer to all of these things, but primarily the focus is the glory of Jesus Christ is on the cross. So let us not miss the fact that this moment of it is time for me to be glorified begins with his death on the cross. We can't miss that. What his enemies intend as a moment of destruction for Jesus, 
What they intend is a moment to silence the message of Jesus Christ, to cause his disciples, his followers, to go into hiding, which it actually does for a little while. Their moment of we need to get rid of him, his disciples, and all evidence that he was ever here is actually the moment of his glory. It's this incredible reversal. And Jesus uses this imagery of seeds and trees and gardening. He said if a seed just remains a seed outside of the ground, it's by itself, it remains alone. It's just a single seed. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it actually is going to grow and it's going to bear much fruit. And Christ is leading us in this conversation to his death and the fruit that his death will actually produce. The church herself and what Christ does with that. The kingdom of God among us, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit, the salvation of the nation. These Greeks who want to see me, this is the fruit that will be born from the cross of Christ. The moment has come that the Son of Man will be glorified. So then Jesus says this, and here's where we feel that this, this language of following him as we make our way closer to the cross, the language gets a little bit more personal, a little bit more intense. This grain of wheat, it's going to fall into the ground and die and then bear fruit. And then he speaks to his disciples in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Love and hate. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to choose who we will love. Because who we will love, especially in this context of Christ or the world, will determine not just our lives here on earth, but our lives for all of eternity. So Jesus speaks in these really stark pieces of vocabulary, love and hate. Don't get too tripped up by that. This is a poetic device that Jesus uses actually a few times as he speaks to his disciples. This love and hate is about extremes. If you love your life so much in this world that you are willing to deny Jesus Christ, then you're going to lose all of it. But if you love Jesus Christ so much that it's like you have laid this life aside, you will both gain this life and life for all of eternity. And Christ doesn't put it in grays. Christ doesn't put it in this kind of 49 to 51%. He deliberately uses this really strong language. And he wants you and I to decide, who will I love? Because that is in the end going to be what decides our lives. And as always, the first and greatest example of exactly this sort of thing is Jesus Christ. What Jesus loves is greater than whatever this life can provide him, so he dies for those he loves to give us life. This is the Savior that we're following now in the Gospel of John on the way to the cross. This is how John, the Gospel writer, puts it in his epistles, 1 John chapter 2, and I would encourage you done this a couple of times as we go through the gospel of John just keep reading ahead get get these these stories in your heart and mind get the language in your heart and mind and read these epistles as well first second and third John because you're gonna they're gonna feel very similar the language the, the things that John emphasizes in his epistles comes right out of his gospel 
1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is John the disciple speaking to the church. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, if I am so attached to the things of this world that I deny Christ, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John the disciples learned this lesson. John the disciple has taught this. Christ taught him. He watched Christ on the cross. He watched Christ come out the other side of the tomb. He watched Christ ascend into heaven. Those angels tell him, don't worry. Christ is coming back just like you saw him leave. He's coming back. So John learns this lesson, and he passes it on to us, and he speaks to us, and he does it in his epistles with the language, little children. I like that. It's just, it, Christians are very close to his heart. Listen, kids, don't love the things of this world. The desires of this life to the desires of our eyes, the pride, the arrogance of this life, it's dust. It's going to disappear. But the love of the Father is what sustains us, is what develops our life here and now. So I think this is part of what Jesus is teaching us. As the Greeks say, we want to see Jesus, and Jesus begins this teaching. I think this is part of what we want to see. People want to see Jesus. Jesus wants people to follow him. Maybe that's exactly what these Greeks wanted, but this is the opportunity that Jesus is taking. People want to see him. The crowds want to see him. I mean, give me a break. This guy is raising people from the dead. I want to hang around. I want to see the cool stuff happen. People want to see Jesus. What Jesus wants is for people to follow him. Now is the hour for me to be glorified, and I need you, disciple, to follow me. So we're pressed with this question. I think we have to answer this question more and more now as disciples of Jesus Christ in our current culture. Why do you want to see Jesus? Why do you follow him? Why do you pay attention to Jesus Christ? What exactly are you after? What do you want from him? For a very long time in parts of the American church, the answer to that question, question has roughly been stuff. <laughs> it's been, I need him to give me stuff and fix everything for me. And a lot of the spiritual abuse happens when that message is given. Because if suddenly you don't have stuff and good things aren't happening to you, well, you lack faith. That's not the gospel. That's spiritual abuse. Why are we following Jesus Christ? Is he my last-ditch Hail Mary? I've done everything I can, and now I'm just going to see if he wants to actually step in and do something. Is that it? Or am I ready to follow him with every breath that I take? He's not the last thing I think about. He's the first thing I think about. Is he a matter of eternal convenience for me? I want to make sure just in case it's true. If I die and my soul goes on, I don't want to go there. I would rather be happy. Is that all that he is? 
to us. So Jesus is pressing this. I'm on my way to the cross. I'm going to die, and I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. I'm going to lay this in your lap, and I just want you to think about this. I want you to work on this. Yes, I do give homework from time to time, I guess. Does what you want from Jesus make sense in the shadow of the cross? Does what you want from Jesus make sense in the shadow of the cross? Because it's going to need to. Trials will come. Suffering will come. People will oppose you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. There are things in your life that will grow harder, not easier, because you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. So my reasons for following him have to be stronger than the seasons of difficulty and trial. They have to be able to make sense in the shadow of the cross. The resurrection makes sense of all of this, but the cross comes first. Selfish or shallow reasons for relationship with Jesus Christ will wither in the sun. These flowers, the grass, they rise up quickly, but in the middle of the desert wilderness sun, they wilt and they die. I think the only relationship worth having with Jesus is the kind of relationship that will endure every single trial of life. This is what God is asking of us. This is where Christ is leading us. But Christ does not ask this kind of thing of us. Like he throws us on the backside of a mountain without a compass and without water. You're going to have to figure this out all by yourself. That's not what Jesus does. He says in this passage of Scripture that where I am, my servant will be also. Wherever you are in life, Jesus says, here and now, I am with you. He does not abandon us. He does not leave us as orphans. Everywhere he goes, he's got you and me right there with him. Isaiah says you're inscribed on the palm of his hand. The Apostle Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God. He does not leave us alone. Where he is, his people will be, both through the cross and in glory. Here's how Jesus puts it in the Gospel of Mark. A very similar teaching and this is probably the one that rings in some of our ears as we talk about this kind of thing this morning. Mark 8, verses 34 through 36. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what in the world will it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Christ is after something powerful with you and me as his followers in this conversation. Friends, the cross is at the center of the plan. It's at the center of the plan, both for Christ and for those of us who follow him. The cross is at the center of the plan. Well, Jesus continues to teach. 
He continues to talk this out. So I want to hear a little bit more about what Jesus says. We quit in verse 26. Let's pick up the story in verse 27 of John chapter 12. Jesus says this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. This is an amazing moment for everybody there. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That's big stuff. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is intimating to the disciples and to the crowd, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth, I'm going to be crucified. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ, the Messiah, remains forever. So the crowd understands that he's talking about his death. Then they say, now we understand from Scripture that the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who's coming to us, isn't going to die, he's going to live forever. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. This is part of the power of this story in John's gospel. It's the light of Christ and the light that we live in with him, the darkness of life without Jesus Christ, and it's all going to get played out on the night of his betrayal. It's all going to get played out when he is crucified and the sun is covered up and there's darkness in the middle of the day. So Christ is preparing them for both, life without him and these moments of darkness that speak to that. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. A very simple but profound image. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This kind of story, this kind of teaching that Christ has given many ways over and over throughout the gospel so far. But Jesus says at the very beginning of this passage, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. This is the hour for which I have come. Jesus is not headed to a fake crucifixion. He's headed to a real, actual crucifixion. This kind of thing is important for us. There have been several heresies that have sort of broken away from Christian orthodoxy, and one of the things that they teach is that the cross didn't really happen. There are all sorts of explanations for Jesus pretended to die on the cross. Jesus is God, left Jesus the man before the cross, and so just a man died on the cross. It wasn't God dying. All kinds of reasons to deny the cross because it is such a radical moment. Jesus is headed to a real cross, and he knows it. My soul is troubled, and it's like I want to say, Father, remove me from this hour, but I can't because this is why I actually came. 
He knows this is the ultimate purpose, and it is the more important thing. This is John's way of getting in Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that's in the other Gospels, the other three Gospels. Luke chapter 22 puts it like this. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And this is just before his actual arrest. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The perspective of this prayer is so important for you and me. Lord, I would love for you to change things. But most of all, I want your will to be done. That's the kind of prayer we should pray. That's the kind of perspective that we should have. That's the kind of habit and perspective we need to build because the moment is going to come in which we're going to have every desire to be removed from this moment. And we're going to have to pray something like, you know what, God, I would love for you to fix this. But more than that, what I know is best is that your will be done. And if it's done through me, then let it be done through me. So Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And the Father actually responds. God speaks from heaven, and the crowd around hears it. Not everybody knows exactly what to make of it. But the Father says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. As far as Jesus is concerned, this is what is most important. Friends, what the cross means and what the cross does reveals the glory of God. What the cross means and what the cross does reveals the glory of God. We've gotten to some interesting places from a conversation between a couple of Greeks and Philip and Andrew. And this request, can we bring these Greeks to talk? I mean, we have found ourselves in some pretty powerful places now as Jesus is talking about what it means to actually follow him. So here's what Jesus says. I want to make sure that we find this. I know it's in this passage. Verse 31. This is what Jesus says. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast. He lists three things. This is how the glory of God will be revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And these are big things. Now, speaking of the cross, is the judgment of this world. The New Testament, in Scripture, the New Testament makes it explicit, especially explicit for us in this kind of vocabulary. The New Testament puts people into two groups, those who follow Jesus Christ and those who follow the world. It isn't the difference between good people and bad people. It's the difference between forgiven people and unforgiven, those who have submitted their lives to Christ and those who hadn't. The language in the New Testament of the world, especially inside of John's gospel and Paul's works, is the way of talking about those who have walked away from Christ or who reject Jesus Christ and do not receive the forgiveness of the cross or the transformation that comes from the cross. So the cross is this pivotal moment about the judgment of the world, Jesus says. 
In the cross of Jesus Christ, sin is dealt with either by forgiveness or through judgment. The judgment that I deserve is placed upon Christ, and Christ forgives me of my sin, or God judges sin in us. It's been put this way before, and I like this. The death of Christ is the future death of sin. The cross of Jesus Christ is the beginning of the end of sin. It's an incredible thing in Scripture. When Christ died on the cross, friends, two things happened. In this context, with what Jesus is saying, we need to see these two things that happen at the cross of Jesus Christ. First, the future end of all sin and rebellion is guaranteed. The future end of all sin and all rebellion is guaranteed. Jesus Christ will return as king and his children will reign with him in his perfect kingdom forever and ever. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 just very simply puts it like this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Scripture speaks of it. We get to the end of the book of Revelation, and it talks about the moment itself when God himself divides the world and judges the world and finishes this. And then in his presence, there is glory forevermore. All sin is gone, all tears are wiped away, and God is intimately and perfectly present with his people. The cross means the future end of all sin and rebellion is guaranteed. And then secondly, while human beings, while you and I still sin against God, I was asked for a show of hands, but that might embarrass most of us. While we still sin against God, a way of forgiveness has been made. The perfect day is coming. Think about that for a moment. The perfect day is coming, but it is not yet. We are tasting the kingdom of God now. It will be a full and complete feast then. The perfect day is coming, but it is not yet. While the world is still caught in sin, while we still struggle with sin, Christ makes a way of forgiveness for all of us. Back in John's epistle, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the glory of the cross. When the angel comes to Joseph, he says, Don't worry about what's happening to Mary. This is God's doing. Take her as your wife. You're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sin. Here it is. Now is the moment for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus says. So God is glorified when the cross forgives sinners and judges sin. This is how God is glorified in this. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Now, the ruler of this world is cast out. And he's speaking of Satan. He's speaking of our enemy. He is speaking of this actual creature whose job it is to try to separate us from Jesus Christ, to try to keep as many people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ as possible, to wreak as much havoc, to make work of as much sin and brokenness as possible. This is our enemy. This is what he does. He is a lion who is prowling, looking for someone to devour. 
Paul actually calls him the prince of the power of the air. He has influence in this world. He holds sway over the world, the world that rejects Jesus, and leads it into darkness. But this is cool. There is a people who have broken away from his rule, and they are the children of God. The enemy has sway in this world through sin and through brokenness, but there are people who belong to God who have broken away from the rule of our enemy and now belong to the rule of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ breaks the power of the enemy over us. This is part of what the cross of Jesus Christ does. This is the language we often use. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, but it is life-changing language. I am a sinner, but Christ died, and I am forgiven. I am a sinner, but Christ died, and I am forgiven. The word Satan can be a name, and it can be a verb. It just means the accuser or the one who accuses. Think about this for a second. Every accusation of the enemy toward you, every ounce of condemnation placed on you by the enemy will forever be answered with, Christ died and I am forgiven. Every accusation, every condemnation from now through eternity will be answered with Christ died and I am forgiven. The answer to the enemy's accusation is not, I have become such a good person, most of that isn't true about me. Christ died and I am forgiven. This truth is played out in this curious but powerful Old Testament passage of Scripture. In the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet has this vision. We talked about this on Tuesday night. If you want to learn more about the prophet Zechariah, show up on Tuesday nights. We talked about this. The entire chapter is about this vision that the prophet sees. And he sees the high priest, his name is Joshua, standing beside Satan, the accuser, before the throne of the angel of the Lord, before the throne of Christ himself. And Joshua, the high priest, is clothed in filthy garments. He is a sinner who cannot stand in the presence of God. And next to him is Satan, who is accusing him of sin. And catch this, everything Satan accuses him of is true. He is a sinner who cannot stand in the presence of God. But in this vision that Zechariah sees, the angel of the Lord takes the garment off of Joshua and replaces it with a clean and pure white garment. And the angel of the Lord says, I have removed your iniquity. Satan accuses us of sin, and God's response is to forgive you and make our enemy a liar. My child will be in my presence because I have forgiven them of their sin. The way the Apostle Paul deals with this truth, at the end of Romans chapter 7, the beginning of Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know how often you felt this way. I feel this way fairly often. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8, verse 1, the page turns. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Even though Satan still works and the world still follows, he is no longer, he no longer has power over the children of God. And the day is coming when he will be chained forever. And his power will be forever repressed by the power of Jesus Christ. So God is glorified when our enemy is defeated for all of eternity. Jesus then says, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. When he is lifted up on the cross, it's going to mark this moment when his influence will grow. The church is going to be born soon. The Holy Spirit is on his way. And the influence of Christ is not just a handful of Greeks or a few Jews in the temple grounds who decide to follow Jesus Christ. His cross means now I will draw all people to myself. Again, the goal of his enemies is to get rid of him, to get rid of the disciples, to get rid of the evidence that he was ever even there. But the cross makes Christ the singular figure in all of human history. More and more people will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The church will grow. The church will explode. There is no power on this earth that can stop the church of Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day when everyone, saved or unsaved, headed toward an eternity with Jesus Christ or an eternity without Jesus Christ, will simply recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The Greeks... The simple request started this conversation, and those Greeks foreshadow the nations streaming to the throne of God. Philippians chapter 2, Paul puts it like this, speaking of Jesus, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God forever. And this is part of the job of the church, is to spread this gospel now, because God is glorified when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. May we now, may we now today bend our knee to Jesus and recognize him as Lord of all, the risen Savior, the King of kings. May it all be done to the glory of God. 